Church, it's good to be with you today. My name is Halimsa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We're continuing our study through the book of Exodus today. And as we've talked about before, in the book of Exodus, we learn about our salvation. In the book of Exodus, we learn about our salvation. As God is saving the Israelites from their bondage and slavery in Egypt, as we're learning about this, as we're reading this and seeing this, we're seeing the parallel to our story of how God rescues us and delivers us from our slavery to sin and death. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw in Exodus 14, the climactic moment of the Israelites being saved, God dividing the Red Sea and the Israelites walking across on dry ground. Well, what we're seeing there is the moment, the instant in which the Israelites crossed over the Red Sea is the moment in which they were saved. You see, one moment as they stood on this side of the Red Sea, they were still slaves. But the very next moment as their feet touched the other side of the Red Sea, they were now freed. They were now saved. Salvation happened in that instant, in that moment when they crossed over. And church, this is how the Bible says that we were saved. If you're a Christian here today, this is how you entered into salvation. There was a moment in your life through Jesus, God brought you over from death into life. That happened in a moment. And when we talk about salvation in this way, by asking things like, when were you saved? Or when did you become a Christian? Or when did you become a believer? When we talk about salvation in this way, we're really talking about one aspect of our salvation. An aspect of our salvation called justification. Justification. When we talk about justification, we're talking about that moment. We're talking about when was it that you were a slave to sin, but then you heard the gospel. And for the very first time, God gave you ears to hear and a heart to comprehend. And God saved you in that instant, in that moment. When did that happen to you? When we talk about salvation like that, we're talking about justification. God in an instant applying the work of the cross over your life and justifying you. That's why we call it justification. Justifying you from what? Declaring you no longer a slave to sin and death, but alive and righteous in Christ Jesus. Whenever that happened to you, that's when you can say you were saved. And many of us, if not most of us in this room, can all share about when that happened, right? The day that God saved you. It was absolutely wonderful, right? But let me ask you a question. How has your life been since God saved you? How has your life been since God saved you? I mean, you're saved, right? All your sins are dealt with, they're paid for. And so from the moment that God saved you, whenever it was, you never struggled with those same sins ever again, right? Right? Life's been amazing, no sin in your life, right? That's not your story? Why not? God saved you, didn't he? I thought God justified you from your sins and freed you from the slavery of sin. If I'm saved, why do I keep sinning? Have you, have you ever asked that question? I know I have. If I'm a Christian, if, I, if I'm saved, why do I keep sinning? Man, I know that God, you saved me. I know he did, but why do I keep sinning? I know he's taken me out of that slavery of sin and death, but why do I oftentimes keep living as if I'm still under that slavery? If I'm a Christian, if I'm a believer, if I'm saved, why do I keep sinning? That's the question that we're going to be 
answering as we look at the text today in Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, we have the Israelites who are barely a month out of Egypt. They are traveling through the wilderness now in order to get to the land of Canaan, the land that God's promised them. And on their journey, they find themselves hungry, okay? Exodus 16, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The Israelites got hungry, and what they basically say is, what are, what are you doing right now, God? What are you doing to us right now, Moses? Are you trying to kill us out here, right? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to begin with? In Egypt, we had pots of meat. We had bread to the full. What are you doing? And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago when we were in Exodus 14, right? Exodus 14 was before they crossed the Red Sea. This sounds really familiar. When they were trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, this is what they said. Exodus 14, verse 11. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing basically no difference. No difference between the time that they were, they didn't yet cross the Red Sea to after they crossed the Red Sea. Really no difference between the time that they were slaves and to the time that now they are freed. No difference in their attitude, no difference in their grumbling, no difference in their character. Has anything changed? Has anything changed? And many times we ask ourselves the same question, right? God, I know I'm saved, but I look at my life and it doesn't look all that different. I'm still keep going back to the same things I used to do. Nothing looks like it's changed. God, am I saved or not? Has anything changed? Yes, in one sense, things are massively different now. Though they were slaves serving Pharaoh in Egypt, now they were on the other side of the Red Sea on their way to the promised land with Pharaoh and his army drowned, dead. Yes, in one sense, things are massively different in that they were taken out of Egypt. They were taken out of slavery. But what we see in Exodus 16 is that even though they were taken out of slavery, the hardship of the wilderness, the hardship of hunger is revealing something about their hearts. The hardship of hunger is revealing something about their hearts. Now, this happens to me all the time. My wife Angela knows that when I get hungry, I get angry. Okay, I get hangry, you know. I mean, what other 200-pound Korean man do you know? I like my food, okay. And when I get hungry, I just, I just act like a jerk, you know. I say, Angela, you messed up my Whataburger order again. I ask, for a, I ask for a sausage, egg, and cheese biscuit, not a bacon, egg, and cheese, you know. And I just act like a jerk. I'm sorry, Angela. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, when I get hungry... It's not making me or turning me into a jerk. The hunger is revealing that I'm already a jerk, okay? That's what it does. And so in Exodus 16, hunger is not making the Israelites grumble and question God's goodness. 
Hunger is revealing that they already had a grumbling heart that questions and still questions God, still doesn't trust God. It's revealing something that's already in there. And what did they say about Egypt? While they were in Egypt, while they were under the harshness of slavery, they cried out in anguish, God, will you save me, right? But now that they've been delivered out, when they think back on it, they think it was great. They say, oh, the pots of meat and bread to the full. They, they remember it with fondness. What is this showing? What is this showing us is that slavery was still in their hearts. What this is showing us is that even though the Israelites had been taken out of slavery, slavery was not yet taken out of their hearts. You guys see this? Even though the Israelites were taken out of slavery, slavery was still in their hearts. Pastor Tim Keller preached on this. And this is the incredible truth that he brings out. He said, this leads us to a principle. You can get people out of slavery in an instant. Zap. It happens like that. They cross the Red Sea. It's a legal thing. It's a political thing. It's a military thing. You can get people out of slavery in an instant, but you can't get the slavery out of people except through a long process. Though legally they were free, actually they hadn't learned how to be and think and work out their liberation into their lives. So you see, this is the answer to if I'm saved, why do I keep sinning? This is the answer to if I'm no longer a slave to sin, why do I keep living as if I'm under that slavery? Because you can take the person out of slavery in an instant, but you can't take the slavery out of the person in an instant. Christian, if you're here today, God saved you in Christ. He's taken you out of slavery. He's taken you out of slavery. Something is massively different now. Though it may not feel so, it's massively different. But the reason why we keep still sinning, the reason why, even though we've been delivered out of slavery, we still act as if we're still in that slavery, is because in our hearts there's still slavery. We've been taken out of slavery, but there's still slavery in our hearts and God needs to take that out. Taking the person out of slavery in an instant, that's called justification. It's an instantaneous work that is done by God and God alone. But taking the slavery out of the person, do you know what that's called? Taking the slavery out of the person, that's called sanctification. And sanctification is another aspect of our salvation that God has for us. He's not just offering us justification. He's also offering us sanctification. But sanctification is not instantaneous. It's the work of getting the slavery out of our hearts little by little over a period of time, over the course of years, decades. And so how does God take the slavery out of us? We saw how God, how he takes the person out of slavery, but how does he take the slavery out of the person? In Exodus 16, we're going to see three main ways that God takes the slavery out of us. Number one, by taking us into the wilderness. How does he take the slavery out of us? Number one, by taking us into the wilderness. Number two, by showing us his greatness. By showing us his greatness. And number three, by calling us into obedience. Obedience. Let's look at the first way. God takes the slavery out of us by taking us into the wilderness. When the Bible uses the word wilderness, it's talking about a desert, a place where things can't really grow, a place where human life can't be sustained. 
And so the reason why the Israelites find themselves thirsty, the reason why the Israelites find themselves hungry is because they're in the wilderness. And the question is, why are they in the wilderness? Is it because of some sin and disobedience in their life? That's why they're in the wilderness? Or did they just get lost into the wilderness and they're waiting for God to bring them out? Why are they in the wilderness? We see the answer in Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy 8, it fast forwards about 40 years and they're about to enter into the promised land. And Moses, just before he dies, he gathers all the people of Israel and he's going to remind them of why they were in the wilderness for so long. He says in verse 1, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. So who led them there? In Deuteronomy 8, we're confronted with the striking fact that the reason why the Israelites are in a place with no food and no water, the reason why they're in this awful, hard, difficult, dangerous, and uncomfortable place is because God led them there. God led them there. It was part of his plan for them. We're struck by the fact that though they had been taken out of Egypt, and if you look at the map, right, if you look at the map, here's Egypt, and here's this promised land, land of Canaan. There's this really direct, quick route to the promised land. But instead of taking them directly, quickly into the promised land, instead he brings them down into the wilderness and has them wander for 40 years. Round and around and around for 40 years. And the question is, why in the world would God do this? Let's keep reading in Deuteronomy 8. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So why did God lead the Israelites into the wilderness for 40 years? To show what was in their heart. To show what was in their heart. And what was in their heart? Slavery was in their heart. Refusal to trust God was in their heart. Refusal to obey God was in their heart. Grumbling and not trusting. Complaining against God was in their heart. Remembering their life in Egypt. Remembering slavery with fondness and wanting to return was in their heart. And again, it's not the wilderness that created the distrust. It's not that the wilderness creates the disobedience and the grumbling. The wilderness revealed what was already in there. There was slavery still in the heart of the Israelites, but they would have never known it. All these things, they were, it was in there, but they would have never known it had not God led them into the wilderness to reveal that slavery so that he could take it out of their hearts. And this is how God uses the wilderness in our lives. This is how God uses the wilderness in our lives. So you're here and you're a Christian. God saved you. He's placed his Holy Spirit inside of you. And so because of that, you want to be a loving person. God saved you. He placed his Holy Spirit inside of you. And so because of that, you want to be a forgiving person. You want to be a kind person. You want to be a thankful person, joyful person, right? And so because you want to be that, you pray and you say, Lord, will you make me into this kind of a person? Will you make me a loving person, forgiving person, kind person? But how does God answer that prayer? How do you think God molds you into a loving and forgiving person? How do you think God transforms you into a joyful, thankful person? 
Many times he answers your prayers and makes you into this kind of person. He sanctifies you through the wilderness, through wilderness training. Have you ever met a person that you would describe to be an unbelievably loving, an unbelievably forgiving person, but they've never been wronged a day in their life? What person would you look at and say, man, they're so loving, they're so forgiving, but they've never been wrong, right? Have you ever met a person that you would describe to be an unbelievably joyful person and thankful person, but you look at their life and all they have done is received? Just got, 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 okay? But when you look at a person and you see them having lost a lot, experienced a loss of deeply precious things and people, and you see them joyful, you see them still thankful. That's how you know God, have, God has transformed them into a joyful, thankful person. So you see, though we've been saved, though God has been infinitely kind towards you, though God has been infinitely loving and forgiving towards you, right? He saved you in that way. After you've been saved, you don't automatically become loving. You don't automatically become forgiving just because you've received that from God. It's by a process you learn to be this way. You learn to be this way. Even though we've experienced these things in our lives, we still have, many of us, the slavery of anger. Many of us in our hearts, we still have the slavery of hatred and bitterness in our hearts, but we may never know it. We may never know it. We may never be challenged to repent of it and change if we're not led into the wilderness to experience being deeply wronged by somebody if we're not led into the wilderness to experience losing something precious to us. Man, this is so hard for us. We so desperately want sanctification to happen like justification did. We want sanctification to happen in a moment, instantaneously, with no work required on our part, God doing everything. We want it to happen like the crossing of the Red Sea. Remember how God brought them over? He said, stand still. Be still, be silent, and watch the salvation of the Lord. You don't have to do anything. I'll do everything, he said. That's justification, right? And we want sanctification to work the same way. We want God to say, just stand there, don't do anything, don't say anything, and just watch me make you into a loving person. You don't have to do anything. Just watch me make you into a forgiving, loving, kind, generous, joyful person, right? We want it to happen instantly. But sanctification doesn't work like that. Sanctification happens through the hard things. Sanctification happens through the difficult things. The Bible calls it refining as through fire. The Bible calls it fire. And it's not an instantaneous kind of thing. It's a long, arduous process. And some of you in here right now, you're in the wilderness. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You're in the wilderness. And it's so hard. But take courage. What is God doing? He's taking the slavery out of your heart. Little by little, he's taking the slavery out of your heart. In the wilderness, oftentimes, God takes away the things that we've built our life upon. That's why it's the wilderness. In the wilderness, oftentimes, God takes away the things that we've placed all of our hopes in, we've placed all of our trust in. Why is he doing that? so that we would take our eyes off of all these other things and fix our eyes on him. Because we may never learn that God is all that we need until he's all that we have. That's the beauty of the wilderness. You may lose everything, but you'll never lose God. 
right? And when you see that you still have God, that's when you will know. That's when you will learn that he's all that you need, right? And the only way that we can say that with conviction, God's all that we need, is in those times in the wilderness when everything else seems to have been taken away. And so that's the first point. How does God take the slavery out of our hearts? Oftentimes by leading us into the wilderness. Point number two, another way that God takes the slavery out of our hearts, another way that he sanctifies us is by showing us his greatness. By showing us his greatness. Now some of you might stop me right here and ask, what do you mean? What do you mean God has to show them his greatness? Haven't the Israelites just seen the ten plagues? Haven't they seen the Red Sea split open and, and Pharaoh and his army drowned in the sea? What do you mean God has to show them his greatness? What more can God show them? And my answer would be, yes, absolutely. God has shown them his greatness in mighty and powerful ways. He's done that. But he's going to show them his greatness in a way they've never seen before. He's about to show them his greatness in a way that they've never seen before. Let's go back to the text, Exodus 16, verse 3. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to reign. Let's stop right here. The Israelites are complaining and grumbling again after all that God's done for them, accusing him of trying to kill them. And so God says, behold, I'm about to rain. What do you think? Behold, I'm about to rain down. What? You know, knowing God's greatness and his holiness that he's already displayed against the Egyptians, it would not shock us if we read next, behold, I'm about to rain down hellfire and brimstone upon all Egypt. It would not be shocking. That's what we would say, right? But it's a good thing we're not God because instead this is what God says. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread. That's what he says. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Verse 35, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And so what's God doing here? He's showing us his greatness. But his greatness in a way that we've never seen before. Through the ten plagues, splitting of the Red Sea, he had already shown the Israelites the greatness of his might, the greatness of his power. But now he's showing them the greatness of his patience. The greatness of his kindness. He's already shown them the greatness of his transcendence, but now he's showing them the greatness of his nearness, the greatness of his intimacy, the greatness of his care. Think about this with me. For 40 years, it said, for 40 years without fail, every morning God provided his people with manna. Think of the care that he had over them 
over each one of them. Remember, the Israelites were told to gather an omer, omer of manna for each person in their household. An omer is just the measuring unit that they use. Think about the kind of care and thoughtfulness that was required. God never forgetting a single person. No woman or even a newly born child was ever forgotten. You know, baby little, little baby Abraham was born yesterday. I'll provide a little more, right? There was never any more or never any less than what God's people needed for that day. Think about the greatness of that kind of attention, that kind of care God thought about and provided for every single individual. No one was ever forgotten. Now God provided the manna and he said it would be a test. A test to see if they would obey him and follow his instructions. He said that every day they needed to go out and gather the manna, except for on the sixth day, they needed to gather twice as much because on the seventh day, it would be a day of rest. It would be a Sabbath, something they would have never known as slaves in Egypt. But they failed the test. Look at verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. He says it's a test and they failed the test, right? And think about all the ways that they failed and disobeyed in the wilderness. In the very next chapter, the people of Israel are going to complain and grumble again. But this time because they don't have water. We're going to see the Israelites raise up another leader and try to overthrow Moses and Aaron, the leaders that God has provided for them. We're going to see the Israelites put together a golden calf and worship it. We're going to see the Israelites fail and disobey over and over again. But look at verse 35. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years. God gives them a test and they fail the test. But in the greatness of his patience, he patiently, lovingly, he lovingly, patiently, over and over again throughout their entire 40 years, continues to say, let's try again tomorrow. Let's try again tomorrow. And when the Israelites sinned, and I mean grievously sinned, think about the morning after they had just bowed down to a golden calf. I wonder if they woke up the next morning thinking, surely there's not manna this morning. Surely there's not manna out there today. Why in the world would God provide manna? And, and I wonder how many times did they go out of their tent and see the manna and with tears in their eyes gathering the manna saying to themselves, he's faithful. He's still faithful. And I wonder how many times they were turned to repentance, not because of the consequences of their sins, but because of the daily kindness of the manna, because of the greatness of God's patience. And so it is with us. How many times have we failed him? Church, how many times have we failed him? Over and over, grievously failed him even. But what is he doing? What he's showing us through the daily provision of manna is that God's grace is still for you. He still offers you forgiveness. His patience never ends. No matter how you failed him, no matter how you've disobeyed, he's continuing to give his kindness to you because he wants you to see that it's great. He wants you to see the greatness of his kindness. He wants you to see the greatness of his forgiveness and patience towards you. And through it all, what's he doing? He's taking that slavery little by little out of your heart. 
little by little out of your heart. So God sanctifies us. He takes the slavery out of our hearts by leading us into the wilderness, by showing the greatness of his patience and grace. And lastly, our third point, by calling us into obedience. By calling us into obedience. This is one of the fundamental differences between justification and sanctification. God's requirement for obedience. We need only to be silent, still, and watch the salvation of the Lord. That's how justification works, right? But in sanctification, God calls us to participate. He calls us into action. He calls us to obey. Obedience is absolutely required for sanctification. Sanctification is impossible without obedience. Am I saying you have to obey to be saved? No, you don't obey to be saved. But a saved person will always obey. You don't obey to be saved, but a saved person, you'll always see the marks of obedience in their life. It will come out. Every day, without fail, for 40 years, God provided manna for his people. God did that. But what did the Israelites have to do? They had to go out every day and gather. They had to go out every day and gather. And after they gathered, what did they do? They had to prepare it. They had to cook it. And then what? They had to eat it. God provided miracle bread from heaven. He gave them manna every day without fail in the wilderness. God gave his people what they needed to survive. But in order to live, the Israelites had to obey. They had to go get it. They had to cook it. They had to eat it. And so it is with us. Except he doesn't give us bread from heaven. Every day, every morning, without fail, he's offering us Jesus. He's offering us Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Every day, without fail, our Heavenly Father is offering us not just bread that we could eat so that our physical bodies can live, but Jesus so that our souls could live. He's offering us Jesus so that our souls can live. Every day, every morning, without fail, he's offering Jesus to us, but we have to go get him. We have to seek him. We have to go out to him. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is saying, I know you're in the wilderness. I brought you there. I know you're in the wilderness. I know the weariness. I know the heavy ladenness, right? He's saying, come to me. I'm here. Come to me. I will give you rest. Well, how do we do that? How do we go out to Jesus? We do it through prayer and God's word. We do it through prayer and God's word. We're called to pray in Jesus' name. And Jesus said, he's the word of God made flesh. We need to daily pray and daily go to God's word. Just as the Israelites gathered the manna, just as they went out and gathered the manna, we need to gather God's word. We need to read God's word. It's been sitting on that shelf for too long. It's there. Think about the greatness of God providing you his word. It's there. But we have to go get it. We have to read it. And not only that, just as the Israelites gathered it, but then they prepared it. They cooked the manna. We need to meditate and think upon and pray God's word. Some of us are reading God's word. We're reading God's word, but we're not meditating. We're not thinking. We're not praying God's word. Okay, we're not letting it come into our hearts. But 
That's not where we need to stop. And just as the Israelites ate the manna, this is the most important part, isn't it? Actually eating the manna. What if the Israelites gathered the manna, cooked the manna, but didn't eat the manna? They would die. They would die. Some of us are reading God's word. Some of us are thinking, meditating, doing Bible studies on God's word. But we're not obeying God's word. That's the most important part. That's when you actually take it in and it gives you life for your soul. And church, whatever Jesus shows you in God's word, whatever he's calling you to obey, obey right away. Obey right away. Obey that very day, if at all possible. The most critical part of sanctification is obedience. The most critical part of sanctification is obedience. And the most critical part of obedience is to obey right away. The most critical part of obedience is to obey right away. The Israelites were commanded to gather each day the manna and eat it that very day. To eat it that very day. And if they would try to save it, keep it, for the next day, the Bible says it would rot with worms. And many of us, we've been there. We go to God's word, we read it, meditate upon it, think upon it, and then we sense, you know, there's these times when we feel like Jesus himself is speaking to us his word, right? And you sense him commanding you to do something. You sense him telling you to stop doing something. You sense him telling you to go take on something, right? And you begin to feel the grace grow. You, be, you begin to feel your faith grow, and you're about to obey, and then you say what? Okay, I'll do that tomorrow. I'll do that next week. And inevitably what happens? It rots with worms. It rots with worms. Your courage, it fades. And you end up just not doing it. Church, how many times have you almost obeyed God but didn't? How many times have we almost obeyed but didn't? Take in God's word. Eat it. Consume it through obedience today. God doesn't want our experience of salvation to be some distant memory of something that he did for us years ago. He doesn't want our experience of salvation to be just justification. He wants our experience of salvation to be sanctification. He doesn't want your experience of salvation to be a one-time salvation that he did some years ago. He wants your experience of salvation to be an everyday salvation. So that when you tell your story to people of how God saved you, it's not just, hey, do you know what God saved me from years ago? But your story could be, hey, do you know what God saved me from last week? You know what he saved me from last week? It's an everyday salvation that God is offering you as he daily saves you from, as he daily takes the slavery out of your heart little by little. And the only way we can do that is if we daily go out to Jesus, daily seek Jesus in prayer and his word and whatever he has to say, we obey. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this great salvation in Christ Jesus. It's greater than we ever thought. It's greater than we ever imagined, God. That it's not just a work you did years and years ago in our lives so that we could say we are saved. But it's the work that you are doing day after day after day, whether we know it or not, it's a work that you are doing right now so that we can say we are a people being saved. Not just recipients of a work long ago, but recipients of a work that you are doing now. Father, thank you for the miracle bread from heaven named Jesus. We thank you that in your faithfulness you daily 
offer us your son. Father, will you give us the faith and the obedience to go out to him. Father, in your word and through prayer, help us to find him. And whatever he has to say, Lord, will you give us the faith to obey and to obey in the fullest way possible, in the most immediate way possible, Lord, so that we might be a people that don't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. In Jesus' name we pray.